Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I just can feel myself in my headspace my thoughts are racing at a million times an hour, so I'm not super articulate today. Um, that's part of the reason. But I'm joined in the studio by learned colleagues to help out, Dr. Sharma and Neonatal. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us yet again at Radiotherapy. And I do not blame your mind for having several concurrent thoughts at once and finding difficulty articulating them because it's a sign of the times. It is. If only there was some news that, you know, health-related news that radiotherapy could deal with. Yeah. <laughs> mm. If only. There must be something going on. Are you guys holding up okay? Yeah, I'm doing doing fine. It's the Dr. Sharma that we're a bit worried about. Yeah, that's right. We're going at a million miles an hour, Dr. Sharma. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's been a really wild uh, three weeks, to say the least. Uh, but, you know, we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But... Yeah, we will. We will. We want to talk to you about um, a lot of that side of things. How about you, Kieran? Oh, neonatal. <laughs> Look, there's the head. I'm fine. Um, the the medical schools are shut, so I'm I've been home for the past the past week, um, living that you know social isolation life, working from home. Although speaking of which, um, in terms of medical schools being shut, really the word is of course that we will need medical students mm. um, because it's actually the older doctors who are incredibly high risk to themselves and to others uh, if if and when they'll be um, when they'll be working in the uh, in the emergency rooms and ICUs and mm. it's actually younger people who are, who are less likely to be harmed. So medical students around the country know that they're, they're, we're kind of gearing up for war here. Mm. Yeah, and you're just alluding to something um, that uh, we're going to have neonatal talk about in just a moment, which is um, recruitment of yeah. med students yeah, and so very, on. It's a very interesting topic and, you know, fraught with ethical questions and uh, questions about safety and what the role of the medical students are, but we'll get into it. Yep. So we'll get to that um, shortly after the news and then we'll spend the back half of the program at least talking with um, Dr. Sharma all things um, frontline health workers. And um, also we were really keen to get some observations and reflections on how the media is behaving um, in, in this as well. But as tradition dictates, let's start with a little bit of news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Alrighty, bit of news. Look, the obviously the news is just all coronavirus, so no surprises at the news item. Um, I'm going to take a look at uh, is coronavirus related and getting getting information. I heard a great expression: um, getting information from the internet is like getting a glass of water from a waterfall. Mm. It's just coming at us thick and fast. Mm. Anyway, uh, given that I'm spending, a, well, not anymore, uh, was in proximity with a lot of students on campuses and things like that, I was really keen to look at personal hygiene. Um, and they're the things that individuals without necessarily any medical expertise can control. They're things that they can do. Um, and I was also self-conscious about one personal hygiene matter that I know is going to be the most difficult for me and maybe for other people, and that's face-touching. 
It is um, driving me nuts. Now, uh, for our listeners, you might not be aware, but Panel Peter has the uh, distinct challenge of being like a lovely, beautiful beard. (laughs) How could one resist stroking it? There we go. It's it's only the one and a half metre rule that's stopping me from reaching out. God knows how you resist. And and, well, I'll just tell you actually how it happened. I was updating myself on what the current advice is on personal hygiene and, you know, thinking that I'm... You know, I'm pretty much across it. I, I think I got this one day off. And, and quite literally, I was scrolling uh, through the phone, running down the dot points going, yep, got that one, yep, got that one, yep, mm-hmm. got that one. And got down to the dot point, um, don't touch your face. And what I'm scrolling while mm. stroking my, my beard <laughs> as I'm doing it. You and stroke in, your beard thinking you're very wise. I'm nailing this. Yeah. And, oh, great. So, in so, so far as news goes, um, I was reminded of a piece of work that was done um, by a professor up at uh, UNSW, and she was keen to look at um, face-touching behaviours. And as a lot of researchers do, their go-to research focus groups are students, right? So I was pretty keen to know a little bit more about student behaviour on this. And these, in fact, were medical students. So she uh, set up uh, cameras um, and, and put signs on the door. You know, students knew that the room that they were in um, was being observed, but it was during – it wasn't one of those focus group rooms. It was actually while they were in a lecture theatre mm-hmm. and, and, and so on. And, um, and then just did the simple arithmetic of counting how many times students touched their, um, their noses and faces, noses and mouths and eyes. And it was, it was a huge number. Uh, she counted, um, ooh, she witnessed more than 2,300 touches and calculated that each student did it about 23 times an hour. God. Once every three minutes. Yep. More unnervingly, the students touch their eyes, noses, or mouths about ten times an hour. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, now, did you spell out the obvious here? So, what we're talking about with those orifices are what we call the mucosal surfaces, where essentially the virus can invade very, very easily. Like the skin on the outside, technically barrier. The mucosal surfaces, these kind of wet, moist membranes, not so much. Not so much. Um, and so uh, with my interest in, in student... Oh, by the way, this particular researcher um, might be known to people... I think we covered a story on some work with um, uh, a breakout of SARS in Hong Kong mm-hmm. back in 2003. This was the same professor who was involved in that. And she was the professor, and probably her team... Um, that worked out the explanation for the doctors that were getting infected, the the SARS doctors, was um, because they were adjusting their eyewear. Mm. So um, her research then fed into that. Um, the uh, I, while I was still fascinated by student behaviour and what's going on around the world on campuses and so on, um, I came across. Um, um, uh, some news out of Dartmouth College uh, Political Science Department where they're doing a name and shame. Dartmouth has got four um, students who are n- now in self-isolation because they've come into contact with the virus. Uh, but the students have started this behaviour of, like, taking photos of each other and oh. and using social media to name and shame on the face-touching side of things. And that's oh, dodgy stuff. Yeah. I don't know, Dr. Sharma? I mean, no, look, that... I think it depends what the tone really is because I think it is quite cheeky catching each other out doing it. Uh, and, 
you know, well, we're talking about what we're trying to prevent here. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- if we talk about the stakes, then uh, you know, I'm on board with a, with a lot of solutions here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's funny. The uh, for Dartmouth, it's actually the researcher who, who tweeted that out was uh, Brendan Nyhan, who's the guy who's re- responsible for a lot of research on on how people think and change their yep. minds and backfiring, etc. Yeah. So whatever's coming out of there, I'm like, uh, I'm on board with. Yeah. 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 No, we got, and I think that's right, Doctor Sean. We just got to keep reminding ourselves what's at stake, mm. you know, and, and think about the measures in relation to the answer to that question. Um, just finally, um, so rather uh, self-centredly, I worked out, okay, what are, what are the str- strategies I can do to stop touching my face? Um, maybe useful to others. Um, various pieces of advice include things like uh, using sticky notes around the place yeah. so that you just saying, you know, don't, if you're, you know, put a sticky note next to your couch or uh, on your television or on your computer screen or, or whatever it is. Um, there was even a suggestion to put on your screensaver, um, don't, oh, yeah. you know, don't, touch your, don't touch your face. Um, there's obviously keep your hands busy is a good one. So finally, there might be a really good use for the, those stress balls and those twig... Um, fidget spinners? Fidget spinners and things like Bring that. Bring them back. <laughs> Bring them back. Wow, this um, coronavirus economy yeah. is uh, really unpredictable. Exactly. Um, embrace your inner doodle. You know, so yeah. just keep doodling. Have a pen and paper and just keep can, doodling. Can I tell you the most innovative solution I've seen? Um, it sounds crazy, but you, if you watch it, it's a method of literally strapping your elbow so you can't fully flex your flex it to, to touch your face. And the thing about these kind of measures is you only really need to do them for a short while because what you're trying to establish is a habit. Yeah. It's only going to be very hard at the start. It's yeah. just a habit we can all snap out yeah. of. Um, link your fingers. So um, if you're just constantly holding your hands together, it makes it harder and harder to do anything with them. You have to deliberately unlink them and deliberately mm. decide what to do. Um, there's um, there's a suggestion around uh, makeup. I'm, I'm a big makeup user. Mm. And the suggestion is to use less or use... Now, I'm joking. I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about here. Um, ah. but, but apparently apparently, there's some makeup that requires more touching up during the day. Mm, right. So choosing makeup that requires less touching up, whether that means using different makeup or um, more or less. Um, eye drops, obviously, mm. um, uh, if, you are, if it's your eyes that you're often going to. Um, there's a suggestion to wear glasses instead of contacts if you can. Yep. So mm, if you've got sense. prescription contacts, go with uh, glasses. Um, you guys got any hot well, tips on that? I've found that I'm in this new world that we've found ourselves in. I'm more conscious of touching my face and more conscious of when others touch their face. So I've got a thing with my housemates I'm telling them off when they're, when they're touching their, their own faces. And it's quite a visceral reaction now seeing someone else touch their face. Yeah. And that has made me quite aware of when I'm touching mine. I don't know if I've changed my behaviour in any way or if that's all uh, some sort of bias that I'm experiencing, but yeah. I think it's helping. I, I think so, and, and uh, the thing I'm trying to switch to is, is kind of what, you, what our panel leader was saying about uh, linking your hands together, mm. some kind of default posture. Yeah. So kind of maybe hands in pockets. Now, neonatal actually is, I always naturally is, is always in these arms folded yeah. position. <laughs> that's, uh, that's his default position, so I've got to choose my posture. Uh, you're right, neonatal, about witnessing it. So uh, two things. So I was watching it in the fewer and fewer classes that I was uh, involved in and now fully online from next week, which is, explains crazy week rewriting courses and for online delivery. Um, and um, But now the ones that I've already started doing online, 
we're using all of the software that allows you video, right? So you're actually, when somebody's speaking um, on the on the particular software we're using, they get to be the the main face on the screen, mm. and you're watching people touch them, touch their face, mm. right? Oh, so it's right. right. So you're literally just a computer screen away from somebody who's scratching their nose or eyes or whatever. Mm. So you're really, really hearing it and feeling it. Okay, guys, let's wrap uh, that little bit up. We're going to come back uh, in a second and talk to Neonatal about uh, the recruitment of uh, med students Mm -hmm. into the workforce. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Neonatal, you're at the pointy end of your uh, training and you're being looked at as a, uh, as a human resource into the mm. healthcare worker workforce. What specifically is going on? Yes, yeah, so I'm six months away from finishing my degree and becoming a fully-fledged doctor. And um, there's a lot of discussion around healthcare shortages, what's going to happen when our healthcare system gets overwhelmed, what happens when doctors get sick, doctors have to look after their children... Um, and the, there are plenty of doctors out there who are older, immunosuppressed, have chronic respiratory issues. What happens when these people need to isolate and uh, can't be looking after the, the COVID-19 cases? Um, and it's quite a, an ethical minefield because a lot of medical students feel like they have a, a duty to help in these situations. There's actually quite some, some good studies um, looking at pandemic flu and um, and students' responses to what would happen if they were required to help. And I think it's something like 63% or 64% said that they would um, feel like they had a duty to help, that that was, that was their role. And when it comes to asking medical students to step into the coronavirus minefield, a lot of them will say yes, and a lot of them will, have, will make that personal sacrifice to say yes. But... Um, some of them may do it for the wrong reasons. Some of them may do it because they think that they have to for their course progression. Some of them may think that they have to to impress someone for a reference, to get a job later out of it. Uh, and it's not really the, the vibe that you want to be giving off as a medical school. So we've had quite a lot of um, communication from um, the the governing bodies, such as AMSA, which is our students, like Medical Students Association, as well as the medical schools. And there is a lot of talk around it. Um, they call it Students Assisting Healthcare. I think I think that's the the acronym that they've been that, that they've chosen, and I think a lot of the idea is that students may be starting to be recruited to do uh, smaller tasks that are not directly related to COVID nineteen or coronavirus um, to free up resources for fully qualified staff to be pushed into the coronavirus. Um, that sounds like I mean, quite a reasonable start yeah. to, to things. And because one of the things, that, and it's one of the myths that we really need to bust for society, I suppose, the idea that young people are safe. Mm. It's just not what this is. Um, I mean, mm. on a couple of levels. Firstly, obviously, uh, you know, when every bed is exhausted because uh, it's every ICU bed in Nice that is occupied taking care of COVID-19, well then, you know, what happens to the 15-year-old who needs emergency surgery? But also, we're seeing reports now come out of US, UK and Italy about the, the genuine surprise of the critical care doctors saying we're seeing otherwise healthy people under the age of 50, often under the age of 40, who are being admitted to ICU. Mm, so it's wow. not like we can just... Medical students are completely this kind of expendable force. Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> there, there are genuine risks here. 
and that's how a lot of medical students have been viewed in the past. In the during the nineteen eighteen uh, influenza pandemic, for example, they um, there's cases in the, from the US of medical students uh, running entire wards um, where it's just them. They they fill the roles of nurses, they fill the role of doctors, they fill the role of cleaners and maintenance men, um, and that's what they were. They were expendable resources to try and get out of that pandemic. Uh, Neonatal, who's coordinating, you know, to the extent that there's any policy around how mm. this is organising and how um, there is the mobilisation going on? Mm. Who's the authority? Um, so a lot of the, um, the healthcare institutions themselves are putting out policies um, and a lot of, and then there's also the the Dean Society, which is writing up um, policies as well. So nothing, as far as I know, nothing has actually been put into play. Uh-huh. Um, it's all very, very conservative, which I'm very pleased about. Um, yeah. They're doing it, they're doing it correctly, making sure it's safe, and it may not happen at all. Uh, this is all still a hypothetical, um, but we are seeing cases in, for example, in Italy where they've pushed out their medical students. I think 10,000 of them were graduated early to help with interns. Um, um, and is payment involved? That is um, discussed as well. So it will be up to the healthcare institutions, it looks like, whether they pay the students or not. Um, one of the qu- questions is, is it going to be voluntary or is it going... and um, and is it going to be voluntary and be contributing to your education or are you going to be providing a service and right. then you should be paid? Right. Because that's what medical students' placement's about. It's anything that we mm. are involved in should be contributing to our education. Right. But if we are not being... Say it's a menial task such as giving uh, something like vaccinations... Or paperwork. Or paperwork or yeah. Yeah. doing emails, whatever. It's... Um, some people think that they should be paid for that because it's not actually contributing to your education. It's something that needs to be done yeah. and we can do that as a um, semi-trained individual. I'm guessing uh, insofar as interaction with patients, that demarcation is really important because the insurers of hospitals um, would want to know what's going on mm. inside the hospitals in case a, uh, a litigious uh, circumstance came up about who was dealing with the patient at the yeah, time, exactly. something somebody's unhappy about. And we know that PPE is in desperate shortage, which I'm sure Dr. Sharma will talk about later on. Um, and the question is, should we be wasting that PPE on medical students who don't contribute that much to healthcare um, of the patient? And like, I wouldn't want to be running an ICU bed. Mm. Um, I don't have, don't have the skills to be running an ICU bed. No. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't want to be wasting... like. PPE to be trailing around behind. That's right, which, which comes back to what you were saying about you know, maybe the best place for medical students is actually the lowest risk place mm. for, for them. And you know, we, we need to think about that. And like you were saying earlier, it may be that this is not even necessary, but we need to have the conversation now mm. um, so we don't just you know, make a, an instinctive decision and just throw in the deep end where it actually doesn't have mm. much use. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> I just had a little bit of a, I don't know, baby cough. He, and he covered it. It's all good. Oh, good uh, a quick, at the, at the exact wrong moment. Step um, two metres away from your radio, you uh, should be fine. That's right, that's right. Um, look, you're with uh, uh, Neonatal, Dr Sharma and Panel Beater, and we're um, working our way through a couple of the issues with coronavirus in the, um, in the, in the health sector workforce at the moment. 
Uh, we'll be back to talk more of that, but uh, we'll take a short break. But it's also an opportune time to point out that the creative sector is doing it really hard at the moment. And um, for obvious reasons, um, you'll not be surprised to know that most musicians or performing artists or uh, what have you are pretty much gig to gig um, and when when they're busy, they're busy, and when they're not busy, they're really not busy. And at the moment, they're really not busy with a lot of the venues um, taking steps. Um, so that's just by way of a nudge. If you can get on Bandcamp and and throw some artists or the, uh, a couple of bucks here yeah. and there at least, buy some merch, um, that sort of thing, please do so. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now, we're turning our attention even more um, specifically to aspects of the um, of the healthcare workforce now with Dr Sharma. Um, Dr Sharma, if we could start just by positioning you in your last couple of weeks since we, well, since we last saw you a month ago, um, your life has been as hectic as anyone I can imagine. Just give us a rundown. Yeah, so look, my life's just basically turned completely upside down. Um, The last three weeks feels like it's been years, to be honest. Uh, I want to give you the rundown of how things went down. the over the last couple of months, you know, some of us doctors have been paying attention to the coronavirus situation, but we kind of really hadn't you know, realised that it was going to get this bad. But we knew that something was up, and we had this gentle assumption in our mind, uh, you know, perhaps a quite an uneducated one, that uh, we'd be able to find cases in Australia, we'd be quarantining, we'd be contact tracing, whatever it is. But it was going to be tough, and as GPs, we will have to test these people to help diagnose, and that's that. And the way it all went down was that we were being told to test by the government, being given mixed messages, but there were no masks available for us. And that's when I first noticed that something wasn't right because Mm -hmm. we'd ask for masks and we wouldn't get them and all the GPs I knew were running out and then I realised tens of thousands of doctors are kind of having this problem, GPs across Australia. And basically started to become very concerned, not just about the lack of masks, but a worry about the the communication and mismanagement from the government. And through whatever mystical twist of fate, over the last three weeks, I've been doing a lot of media. One led to another, led to another, led to another. I I don't know how many I've done. It's I've kind of lost count, to be honest. Maybe seven-ish TV spots, similar radio, lot for print, etc. Um and the the pace has been building rapidly for me as a medical practitioner as you start to learn more and more about how little has been done and why time in a scale of days is important, mm. in a days. So the fact that we're two weeks behind where we should be is actually quite horrifying. And uh, it's, it's been very challenging personally because um, the, the way that exponential curves work is that it's really long and flat until mm. it, things get really steep. And so it, your intuitions about how bad it is don't align with reality and data. So there's a lot of second-guessing and even your colleagues aren't quite sure. But once you know, everyone kind of caught up, um, you know, the, the, the pace has just been incredible. Uh, Earlier early you were telling me about how much there is to kind of cope with in terms of information, a glass of, you know, a glass of water you're trying to pull from a waterfall. 
Um, the, the facts and realities change on a three-hourly basis, uh, I, I would say. Something happens where I go, I'm already behind. Now, this is a, a really important thing because you've been a big advocate for Twitter um, being your one of your main sources of information. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's a really good one to bring up because firstly, that's where you will see what medical professionals really think. Um, we've kind of built up this bizarre situation where the government says they are speaking to the experts, but you never really actually hear from the experts. Mm. Um, and, and that's a bit of a problem. And it's only on Twitter you will see the massive amount of dissent away from mm. what the government is saying. And, and not just dissent. It's not like there's a variety of opinions. Almost all the doctors and epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists are saying the same thing. And Twitter is where that discussion is being had. Not just that. Um, it's these, this discussion, this refinement of arguments that's actually leading to media attention, that's actually led to the difficult questions being asked from the government. Uh, and uh, t- like Twitter's basically been completely invaluable. In fact, honestly, I have to say, just media overall, full stop. Um, the, the, the irony here is that the, the commonest misconception that the communities had about this situation is that it's a media beat-up. It's a right. media frenzy. Right. And the government is feeding that. They're trying to turn that to their advantage, aren't they? Um, Morrison on um, radio during the week uh, said... I'm, he was asked a question, a clearly an important direct question about um, uh, response responses. And his response to that preempting the source of the question was, I'm not listening to Twitter. That's just all mm, gossip. That's good. Um, and it's da-da-da-da. And it, it, really, it really betrayed the, um, uh, the way that the government is thinking about it, right? Because, as you point out, um, yeah, there is some really significant medical discussion taking place by some real heavy hitters, um, you know, across the areas of expertise that we... Um, need right now and they are pointing to the government's behavior messaging and and actual policy responses and just saying hey you're not listening that's exactly right and uh, and i think in part the government's scared of twitter uh, because of how much expert opinion there is actually driving the news cycle Mm. um which is and it's it's now come to the point where yeah i think it's the only avenue through which i feel i could hold the government accountable uh, which is the, the the discussion in that sphere and how it leads to to, to to the media calling a lot of this nonsense out. Perhaps just while we while we we're talking specifically about Twitter for um a for a new user, somebody new to Twitter, and they're hearing this discussion and going, "Oh, I've never really mm. dipped in there," or I or I did, and it was just like too mm. too much. Um, which Hashtag should they follow? There's yeah. about 14, 15 Correct. of them going around. Mm. Um, and how would you suggest any of our listeners who want to get on to Twitter to fo- follow this discussion? Mm. So um, look, who, how would they determine who to follow and who not to? Yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. And look, the truth is Twitter is probably the least user-friendly to start <laughs> off with. Um, the good thing is if, if you make an account and then just you know, search for hashtag uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 or anything else, the, the, the way the algorithm works is that it'll find you related things uh, and then basically you follow the people you need to and want to. Um, so, you know, radiotherapy would be a good one to follow. Uh, you know, not to... I would never actually even dream of doing this in any other circumstances, but the truth is we've got a pandemic, we need to hold the government accountable, but 
follow me yeah. Right? yeah at yeah. d-r-v-y-o-m and if it's not for me per se for the people that i'm following you yeah can that's see, right you can mm. see who i'm listening to yeah that's probably a very good way to think good about this yep um you, you should you should see who uh, you know some of the other j- journalists are following as well and and you will get updates just leagues ahead of what the government is, is, is telling us in our health alerts that we mm. get from the in these opt-in email systems that tell us the so-called latest on coronavirus let's lift it up just out of twitter now for a moment and how are you observing media behavior in general you just told us how engaged you've been over the last especially last fortnight but over the last month more broadly um what observations you've been able to make about their role in all of this the media roles has been massive and i think you know i hate to use this phrase i I think it's a little bit of the boy cried wolf situation where people have built up this scepticism of the health uh, news kind of exaggerations uh, and yet every medical professional I know know, who understands this is saying, no, no, look, there's just literally no exaggeration here. Um, They are... It's been a really steep learning curve for the media. It's been extremely steep uh, and to wrap their head around how Italy's evolving and how that's going to impact us. So the, the fantastic thing I've seen is their platforming of experts, people who know what they're talking about. There's a lot of work the media's doing just behind the scenes, just trying to learn what's going on. So yeah. There's so much that, that's actually not making it on air, so to speak. Yeah. But you know, you'd, be, you'd be amazed at the amount that some senior journalists in this country understand. Hmm. Yeah, I um, so what you're, you're talking about uh, preparing briefing papers for journalists and, and making sure terminology is being used in particular ways and, and so on. That's correct, yeah. So you know, well, it's a suspected case and what's COVID and what's mm. SARS-CoV-2 and what's coronavirus. Um, so you know, uh, they, they've, they've, got a, they've had a lot to learn in a short amount of time and you know, I've, I've got to say they've done a far better job than, than the government. Mm. We've done a show uh, together in recent times on uh, public health campaigns. And conspicuous by its absence is the lack of public health campaigning. There's a there's a short video going around, an animated video about washing and the, like the four big you know things. Mm. But where's our slip slop slap uh, campaign? Where's our drink drive bloody idiot campaign? Let alone where's our campaign? Anything along the lines of the HIV AIDS yeah. campaigning? Yeah. And so, stuff so, like that. so the reason why we don't have these campaigns is because the politicians have only barely begun to grasp what's actually happening. It, it's we know we need these campaigns. They didn't understand the need until maybe a couple of weeks ago. If all these people in power have been trapped into this, you know, the cognitive trap of not understanding what exponential curves look like, mm. and the messaging is leagues behind where it needs to be. Where it needs to be right now is everyone coming to an understanding of uh, of social distancing, isolation, quarantining, what these things even mean, why we need to be applied, but. But people aren't just going to do what you tell them. They need to understand why it's important. Mm. What's the scale of the situation? Can I be harmed? Who will be harmed? And even if there's no direct harms, how is this going to kind of play out? So we're now getting messages like wash your hands and social distancing kind of signs at bus stops. But a lot of people have no concept of how important this is and why it's so important. So the messaging is leagues behind where it needs to be. And there's a lot of um, talk about... It being uh, fine for the younger younger age groups, it being a mild disease in the younger age groups, which is a really interesting point because uh, what is considered mild uh, in terms of coronavirus is anything up to pneumonia. 
That's right. Anything up to pneumonia not requiring oxygen. So this is something that a, a few people had noted uh, I- I a week and a half ago when the uh, WHO uh, lead who reported uh, on China said that in an interview. And then it, it prompted me to look at the WHO's report. Um, and it gets even more surprising than that. Yes, it's true that younger people have mild to moderate disease. Not only do we now know that it can cause pneumonia, people with mild symptoms are dying. This makes no intuitive sense because mm. you think mild means you're going to be okay. No, no, no. What this means is young people who've got mild disease and pneumonia could just just die from this. And we've built up this mythology of it's only got a 2% mortality rate or a 1% and 3.4 and everything else. And those stats are so sticky in people's brain because we've got this massive normalcy bias about how mm. things are just kind of going to be okay. And it's very difficult to, to evict that falsity from people's minds and go, actually, it's not like that. It's very likely worse than that. There's a lot we don't know. And this is a bit of a kind of Pascal's wager here. <laughs> we, we just have to do the right thing <laughs> and, and take, take the jump and, and, and do what needs, we need to do to preserve ourselves. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, we'd like to turn our attention to just defining um, a couple of the big terms that we're hearing a lot in the media and sometimes some language seems to be being used interchangeably mm -hmm. um, and it really matters how we talk about these things, doesn't it? So uh, maybe we could start with social distancing and quarantine and isolation, Dr. Yeah, so, so those three get mixed up a lot. In fact, not just by people, by the government and experts, uh, you know, uh, who are mixing these terms up. And really important to, to, to identify these because everyone thinks they have to isolate and that's an unattainable goal that people are going to fatigue from and no one's going to do anything. So the best way to think about it is this. Social distancing is what everyone needs to do and isolation and quarantine is what you need to do if you are, have the virus or there's a high chance that you might have the virus. So let's talk about you know, those first. So isolation is technically the thing you have to do if you've tested positive for this virus. And that means staying in your home, ideally in the same room if you live with other people, only coming out for essentials like medical appointments, other people are supposed to bring you food. Um, you can go into the veranda or garden by yourself. You can do that kind of stuff. Quarantine is what you have to do if, like, if we can't, you have, we haven't done the test on you to show you've got the virus. And there could be a million reasons for that, right? Maybe you don't have enough of the test kits, you don't fit the criteria, whatever. So quarantine is the same thing as isolation, just without the tests. There's some special category of people who might need to quarantine, even if they're not sick. For example, if you've returned from overseas within the last two weeks. So that's the category that's going to change the most. Social distancing, on the other hand, is a thing that everyone needs to do. It's this multi-layered approach towards stopping people from clumping together and touching the same things. Mm. It covers everything from coughing into your elbow, standing a metre and a half, two metres apart, minimising the amount you go out to shops and restaurants, things, to everything for, to, to closure of, of sporting events and schools and working from home. So isolation and quarantine for some people, very high risk or are infected, and social distancing for everyone. Um, we had a message in from uh, listener subscriber Chris asking, can you go bushwalking with mates? If you have enough distance between you, yeah, why not? I mean, this is the thing. We have to get this stuff attainable, achievable. Mm. Otherwise, none of us are going to be able to maintain it. So the government's guidelines say you can, you can 
sit in the lawn together. It's an open air space. As long as there's diff- enough gap between mm. you, that's totally fine. So bushwalking can't see a huge problem with as long as we're clever about distance. And and presumably it's got something to do with numbers, right? So two people on a beach might be okay mm. uh, with di- appropriate distance, but uh, that photo of Bondi no. Beach... Um, so so that was one of the most Friday. horrifying images I've seen. And uh, yeah, the, the point being that... Everything we do in terms of social distancing is about minimizing the numerical risk. So I cannot guarantee that, you know, I'm not going to give it to someone two meters away. The risk is right. tiny. Not like that when there's thousands of people around. All right. Well, let's, um, let's talk about how to read numbers. Mm-hmm. What are the numbers we want to look at? There's obviously a difference between um, uh, mortality. Uh, there's a difference between infection rates. There's a, you know, and so on and so forth. You want to take us through some of the big ones that you see? that you think we should pay attention to? I guess, so So, in terms of mortality, the number we're really talking about is, is case fatality mm. rate. Um, the, the people who actually get COVID proven and you know, like how many of, of them die as opposed to the ones who kind of don't. You'll see that thrown around a lot. Uh, we're talking about other numbers, for example, the the doubling rate, uh, which is another one. So this is we are in the exponential phase of this disease. So every... Roughly four days or so, the number of cases in this country doubles, which is why it seems so slow to start off with. Yeah. But we're going to have about 10,000 cases by the end of the month. And were we to do nothing by the end of uh, April, we would have a million cases. So, just, uh, I need to catch my breath on that one, Dr. Sharma. So you're saying that by the time the three of us are together, neonatal Dr. Sharma and panel beta, one month away from now, we could be looking at those sorts of numbers. So, so the reality is, look, I don't think a million is going to happen because um, we're going to do something about it. But the, but eventually, yeah, we're talking about people being infected in the millions, in right. the millions. And, uh, and the, 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 the reality is we probably haven't have been shielded from the numbers because the government was scared of a panic, but we're now we've got complacency. Mm. But you know, we need to talk about the fact that the government's estimates are fifty to 150,000 people are going to die. Yep. And our aim is to bring it down to 50,000. That's the best case scenario. Um, Am I right in thinking um, another number we need to get our head around is understanding what it means to say how many people have uh, been exposed Mm. compared to how many have it um, and also understand that number in relation to how much testing is going on? That's a a really tough one to to answer basically because... um, it's funny thing is Australia's doing a lot of testing, but the criteria is getting narrower and narrower every day because we're running out of materials. So right now we're only testing people who are at very high risk of having of actually having the the infection, but we're still not finding very much. Um, as compared to a lot of other countries, say South Korea or parts of Italy, they're just testing everyone because as we're learning now, you could not have any symptoms at all and still be carrying the infection and still be transmitting it to other people. So the the case fatality rate then, uh, particularly for countries like Australia that aren't testing much, it must be skewed. That's the assumption we're making, uh, that actually there's probably a lot more people who've got the infection. um, And so we're only... Actually, the the case fatality rate's much lower than than what we Mm. think it is. Uh, The the concern is, of course, that it's actually still abhorrently high. Mm. And... How does this all relate to flattening the curve is a term that we hear being thrown around quite a lot. Yeah. So the the idea being we cannot stop the transmission of this virus. That's basically impossible. Flattening the curve is trying to do kind of two things. We're talking about trying to reduce the number of people who get the infection so we can hopefully reduce the total number of deaths. But also, if we can increase the amount of time over which the entire population gets sick, 
it means that we won't completely overwhelm the, uh, the health system. So to give you like a brief example, I'm just going to make up some numbers here. Say uh, I run a hospital with 300 beds. Now, if 1,000 people in my town get sick today, it's all over. Yep. But if that 1,000 people get sick over six months, we can take care of them. So even though we can't stop the infection, if we can slow it down, we stop the complete overwhelming of the health system. So this is what we're talking about with flattening the curve, reducing the number, increasing the time over which people get sick. And the populace of Melbourne listening today, how are they going to help you flatten the curve? So the number one thing that everyone can do uh, is social distancing. This is it. If we can reduce the frequency with which we clump around other people and touch the same things, it'll be okay. And so it's not just washing your hands and sneezing into your elbow. It is trying to reduce the amount of trips you make outside, not having you know, having parties, etc. Um, and the, the thing is, the government's doing a lot of the bigger scale stuff that they might enforce, or I hope they'll enforce soon, but a lot of the personal responsibility comes down to you. If you can stay home, you should stay home. If you can work from home, do that. If you can you know, get something done in, in one trip instead of five, do that. You're mm. slowing down transmission. We're saving tens of thousands of lives. If we can slow down transmission by even 25%, literally tens of thousands of lives are going to be saved. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Neonatal, you're keeping an eye on the radiotherapy poll regarding public transport use. Yeah, so the, the question was, are you still using public transport? Mm-hmm. And uh, the response is actually quite surprising to me. It was about even numbers, 50-50, um, across both Twitter and Facebook. Um, which is uh, quite shocking. I would have thought that a lot of people were dropping off on the public transport. Dr. Sharma, what's your your views on this? I mean, look, if I look at where where community sentiment is on this, I'd say 50% is is much better than I would have thought, honestly. Um, And it's it's a tough one because we need uh, public transport. Um, And unfortunately, you know, cars are actually much safer in terms of preventing transmission, (laughs) which is for once, if you can believe it. So there's things the government can and should be doing in terms of potentially staggering public transport times, staggering work times and shifts for people. Again, less people clumping, the, mm. the kind of better it is. Um, but no, I'm, 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 it, is, it is a curious phenomenon as to, as to why people are uh, still going on it or maybe not going on it. Is it fear-driven? Is it social responsibility? Oh. Yeah, there is a, a real perverse irony. As somebody who's always championed public transport or you know ride your bike type thing, to see cars with only one person in it and going, oh, that's probably <laughs> the option right now. Yeah. Um, I, my, my, I'm... I'm mostly a commuter cyclist, but I do jump on the tram from time to time. And um, I did catch it a couple of times during the week, so I kind of fall between the cracks on the pole front. I'm still using it. I'm just being a little bit more careful, a bit more deliberate about it. I don't see myself using it at all next week, Hmm. um, which is, you know... Sign of the times. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I wonder if we can be a bit more innovative, like Singapore, who multiple times a day are cleaning their public transport. You know, yeah. Little, but these things, I'm just not seeing that kind of agility from our government. Well, there, there was an interesting post from Dan Andrews recently asking for workers to be recruited 
um, particularly people who have just lost their jobs, to do things like clean public transport. So maybe it is in the in the near future. I mean, the workforce issue is massive here, and we need to be thinking of clever ways to, to use it to an advantage mm. and not just you know, suffer the loss of attrition. Yeah. Yep. Um, perhaps just uh, the last thing that we really need to touch on um, for our audience is to talk about how they might engage with the health care system at the moment. Now, coronavirus is the, is the thing that people are thinking about and talking about, but people are still um, getting injured while they're gardening on the weekend or, you know, things of this nature or wondering whether they should go and see their GP because of a sniffle or something. Um, how, do you, how can we advise listeners to, to make those decisions for themselves with engaging with a, with a stretched workforce? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one and the, the workforce is going to have to widen its, its, its services that we're making available. The big uh, news there is telehealth. Um, the, you can call a doctor and you may qualify for, for telehealth and there's actually a lot we can do over the phone. There's a lot we can diagnose and treat accordingly. Mm. Um, it may be that you need to come into the clinic uh, and there's, there's clever ways we can do that. So people who we think are going to be very high infectious risk, we will tell to you know, weigh in the isolation room so we can kind of quarantine them away from, mm. from, from other people so they don't get infected. What we don't want is just rock, people rocking up to the clinic. Telehealth is going to be a big one. I think that's going to be widened in terms of its, its access to, to, to people, uh, especially for things like psychologists. Like, mm. I think we're all going to need a lot of mental health uh, care <laughs> uh, in the next few months. Yeah, <laughs> hands gone up in the yeah, yeah. studio. And uh, and I think those rebats are coming. They're just inevitable. They've got to be. Yeah, I was actually um, there's a clinic next to Triple R this morning, and I was stopped in the uh, when I was parking my car because um, there were a couple of people out the front being like, "You coming in for coming in for appointment?" So it's good. The clinics are innovating. They're they're trying to make a difference. They're trying to stop that transmission. That's right. One of our clinics, um, uh, not my one, one of my friends. They've uh, you cannot sit, you know, two adjacent seats to someone else. Um, so there's there's all these little tricks and, and and things that people are innovating right now. Testing people in their cars, coming down with little swabs. So yeah, we've got to be nimble. We've got to be agile and proactive. Have you? Taken out all of the uh, magazines and things from the waiting room. I did. Someone, <laughs> that's right. Someone messaged me that, and they went out into the bin. Yeah, straight good stuff. Away. Um, and that reminds me, uh, the latest I heard from uh, South Korea was that they have um, now stored these. They kind of look like phone booths now, so you can go in for a, a testing in a phone booth. One of the big issues of mass testing was the amount of time it took to disinfect a testing room. Now, mm. for when they're phone booth size, they can do them. They can do them quite quickly. Um, guys, we're, sorry, Neo. Yeah, I just, just want to say that we've got quite a few messages coming through on our socials, and I oh, just yeah. want to say that we're sorry we couldn't get to them. We do appreciate the uh, the input, but we just didn't have the time today. We've got time for maybe one. Do you want to just yeah, pick so, up the last one in? Uh, so let's have a look. Someone was asking about um, how many. What's the um, the number of cases if we? Uh, if we try and extrapolate from the number we've been tested to the number that you think there's actually out there in the community, what number do you think is out there in the community? Oh, look, um, to be honest, it could be about 10 times more. Like, that's not a completely really? implausible thought. Hmm. And we're currently at? Uh, a thousand. We've got a thousand cases currently confirmed. Look, I mean, 10,000 probably a, quite a higher estimate, but we've got to think like that. Okay, guys. Neo Nadal, Dr. Sharma, thanks a lot, guys, for coming in. Um, and it's been great talking through cor- coronavirus with you. I'm sure this won't be the last of it. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well being. 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.